Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, Corey Robin, here to discuss the second edition of his book of essays, The Reactionary Mind. The first, which came out in 2011, was subtitled Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Sarah Palin. For the second edition, which is brand new, Palin has been replaced with a far more consequential Donald Trump. Most people on the left don't take the right seriously enough. Yes, they often fear and demonize it, appropriate reactions much of the time, but they're not interested in its ideas. In fact, many doubt that they even have ideas, following Lionel Trilling's famous observation that the conservative impulse and the reactionary impulse do not express themselves in ideas, but only in action or in irritable mental gestures which seek to resemble ideas. Corey, even though he's never found any attraction in right-wing ideas, takes them very seriously and reports and analyzes them for the rest of us. When we recorded this interview a couple of weeks ago, the prospects for the GOP passing their abominable tax bill looked dim. Now it's looking like they may do it after all. I asked Corey for a comment. Here's what he said. You could say two things. First is telling that despite this bill being the second most unpopular piece of major legislation in 25 years, the repeal of Obamacare being the other, despite this bill having no fervent support from the base, that is going to be passed and with the support of some of the most august voices from the Nixon, Reagan, Bush, and Bush administrations. It's almost as if Trumpism is an elitist project that has strong links to previous modes of conservatism. Second, this bill could have been beatable, that the left hasn't mobilized nearly to the degree that it did around preserving Obamacare or against the travel ban, tells you what the real problem is here. Not only that we have a zombie conservatism that can run an autopilot in defiance of the popular will, but we also have a left that doesn't know how to speak a left language around taxes. All the left, I'm speaking now of the Democratic Party, but I think this problem extends across the entire left spectrum, knows how to say when it comes to taxes is A, if you're going to cut taxes in the wealthy, you also have to cut them in the middle class, and B, cutting taxes will hurt the deficit. The left needs to find new language on taxes. And that's the end of the quote from Corey. Okay, here's Corey Robin, professor of political science at Brooklyn College and author of The Reactionary Mind, just out in an updated edition from Oxford University Press. So, Corey, it's been a few years since uh, we did an interview about uh, reaction in general, but uh, let's just review your your overarching thesis about uh, reaction uh, and uh, as being a reaction to the left, that reactionary really means reaction, right? Yeah. So reactionary politics, reactionary thought is always a response uh, to emancipatory movements of the left. So not just the the existence of the left, but uh, a particular kind of left, a left that's moving, that's aiming for acts of dispossession. And those movements can change across time. The French Revolution is is the original one. Uh, Abolition was another. Uh, The labor movement was another. The black freedom struggle, the women's movement, the movements change. And what the reactionary right always sees in those movements is an attempt to dispossess uh, men of power of that power. And so that's essentially what it is. What's interesting about it is that in reacting to those movements, the right is always borrowing from the very movements that it is opposing. So there's a kind of synergy or a, a relationship between the movement and the reaction uh, that will shape the kind of reaction that takes place. And we are at a time now where it looks like the left is rather weak, and yet the reactionaries seem to be in charge. How are they dealing with success? As we've seen, it's been a huge problem for them. Uh, in fact, by their own testimony, it's almost poignant, actually, the statements you get from a lot of the Republicans who are in Congress, where they repeatedly bemoan the fact 
that they have something that they have been dreaming of for quite a long time, uh, namely complete and utter control over all three branches of government at this point, and yet they seem to be incapable of moving the ball forward. Uh, sorry to use that cliche. <laughs> but with the exception of the kind of regulatory or deregulatory mechanisms that Trump has been engaging in, that is to say, things that he can do in the executive, things that any president can do by virtue of being a president, with the exception of that, and that's a big exception, which we can talk about more, they've been spectacularly ineffective at advancing uh, uh, their right-wing agenda. We saw it obviously most clearly with the failure to repeal Obamacare. But what I've been struck by, one of the things that I've been struck by is that this entire year, there have been, I think, two continuing resolutions on the budget. These are these short-term three to four-month spending measures. And each time, the Republicans could have used that moment in order to advance some policy agenda. And both times they have failed. The, the budgets they ended up passing look remarkably like the budgets that Barack Obama had, would have passed. There's some way in which they're, they're almost proceeding as a caricature themselves. They've been in opposition for so long and running against and saying no, 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 in that very essence of reaction way that they really have a hard time now putting together something that resembles a positive agenda. Right. And I think we need to be careful about that because some people, that's one of the arguments you hear, a, a caricatured version of that argument is they were out of power so long, Republicans don't know how to govern. Well, Republicans have been out of power for many years before uh, they were out of power through the Clinton years. They were out of power, you know, through part of the, the Carter years. And yet they were able, when they came into power, to exercise it with a tremendous amount of dispatch. I don't think the mere fact of being out of power is enough to explain that. I think what's really going on here is they've come into power without a real left to oppose. And I think this is something that people have a very hard time grappling with, both because I think the left sometimes has an extraordinarily inflated sense of its own power, but also because if you listen to them, if you listen to Fox News, and if you listen to the rhetoric, it sounds as if they believe themselves to be besieged. But of course, that language of being besieged is always there in conservative rhetoric. I see this as a kind of the re residual reflex that they, this is how they speak. But the, the material reality is that they have been overwhelmingly successful. Uh, and we could look at a whole bunch of measures to see that. But now we, that we see them to be that, you know, their first year in power and not able to do a thing, I think that's really the final testament of the fact that they've been successful. I mean, I keep coming back to this. Someone like Donald Trump could never, ever in a million years have been, forget elected, nominated by the party uh, during the Cold War. Uh, for instance, there was just way too much at stake. Their victory since the end of the Cold War, and really with with the George W. Bush, you know, tax cuts, that victory has allowed them what I call the luxury of irresponsibility. Uh, they can experiment. They can they can play this clownish game, uh, in part because they have achieved so much. The idea that they uh, don't know how to govern. I mean, people like McConnell and Ryan have been around for a long time. These are not. Newcomers, by any means. I mean, McConnell in particular. Ryan, I think, was always, his reputation was always way overinflated. I mean, I looked at this a while ago. I think he, in the end, managed to get three bills through Congress in his entire time before his ascension to the speakerdom. And one of them was literally to rename a post office.
But McConnell, you're absolutely right. Like, this is a guy who knows how to wield power. Um, and you can blame the first uh, screw up on Obamacare repeal on Trump, the one that, that led to the failure in March in the House. But then they got their act together. But the, the serial failure in the Senate, um, that's not Trump's fault. You know, that's on McConnell. And, he, and it's not for lack of talent. Uh, it's clearly there's just something much, a much deeper fissure going on there in the party. I want to talk about Trump later, but uh, let's talk about some of the themes of, of the book. Um, one is that uh, conservatism reaction is, on one hand, uh, a defensive power, a privilege hierarchy. But on the other hand, a lot of its uh, most uh, able ideologues and philosophers and practitioners have been outsiders of some sort. Uh, just talk about how that is and why that is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I mean, it, and it goes way back to Edmund Burke. People no, who's thought of it like as a paradigm aristocrat. Exactly, and and he was anything but that. And 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 what's more, he knew it. Uh, so he was first of all from Ireland, uh, coming to London. So that's point one against him. He was from a family uh, that, up until the pre- up until the, the the penultimate generation, had been Catholic, and so they were recent converts uh, to the Church of Ireland, to the Anglican faith, and. Uh, there was always rumors that dogged him that they, that he had been secretly raised as a Catholic. So the Catholicism was a huge mark against him. And just incidentally, he showed quite a bit of sensitivity to the whole question of uh, toleration for Catholics, uh, which I think comes from that background. And lastly, he was not at all an aristocrat. He was the child of a lawyer, which, you know, again, in, in 18th century Britain, you know, that's kind of one step up from from the dregs. There were so many marks against him. And what's fascinating is in all of his defenses, these rhapsodic defenses of aristocratic Britain, he knows that he is not. And so there's a wonderful uh, text of his letter to a noble lord where he takes on these two aristocrats in particular, uh, Bedford and Lauderdale, who uh, were staunch defenders of the French Revolution. So, you know, your you're original limousine liberal types and... And you can just see the seething rage uh, that Burke has against these two because they go after him for reasons that are complicated, and not that interesting. Um, and and he says, you know, I here and he says this, I have staked everything on defending your inheritance because you guys couldn't do it yourself. And you could just see the rage and the humiliation that he has. But aside from the interesting sort of psychobiographical, I think there's a, a, a political point there, which is, uh, and he's the first to, to do this, it's oftentimes the outsider who understands the inside best. Isaiah Berlin famously, famously said this about nationalism. Many of the great nationalist leaders were never from the country that they were defending. You know, Stalin was from Georgia. He was in, he was in a Russian. Napoleon was from Corsica, was it, I think? Right. Uh, wasn't from France. But anyway, I think the same is true of the right, uh, that these uh, these outsider figures, the original subtitle of the book was, you know, from Edmund Burke to Sarah Palin. But these outside figures have always understood what it takes to defend a ruling class, uh, because for them, it was never assured. It was something that they had to crawl their way into. And they develop talents, that are kind of scrappiness and virtues that people who are to the manner born really lack. I mean, you see this interestingly in some of the things Trump says. But we don't have to jump ahead, you know, yet to that. So I think that's really key to this, these outside figures. You know, Margaret Thatcher, you know, another one. Uh, Ronald Reagan, you know, was born to an alcoholic, very you know, fairly destitute family. Richard Nixon, um, all these people. And they bring that sense of their outsiderness 
not just the defense of elite privilege, but it's also how they are able to translate elite privilege to the masses. They develop a kind of populist touch that I think makes them very, uh, they, they kind of develop an antenna almost of how the elite look to the masses and how they need to look to the masses in order to defend their power. As the society got more and more democratic, uh, they needed the masses more and more to pr- prosecute a reactionary agenda. Absolutely. The populism is there from the get-go, but there is no doubt that over time it becomes increasingly important. You know, Disraeli, you might say, in some ways, is one of the first to really fully understand it and execute this in in the second half of uh, the 19th century in Britain, right after the uh, extension of the franchise in 1862 or 1867, whenever that was. But in the 20th century, of course, in the United States, we see a similar thing happening where the right awakens in response to the New Deal, immediately in response to the New Deal, but it flounders for a long time looking for that populist spark. Most historians believe that they finally find it really in the 1960s with the backlash against the civil rights movement and then you know, in very much in, in response to the women's movement. I'm speaking with Corey Robin, author of The Reactionary Mind, just out in an updated edition from Oxford University Press. And we've talked about this before, but this is an important angle. You know, we, so far we've been in our conversation, we've been talking on like big picture politics, but an awful lot of the rage of the right comes down to the life at home. When I interviewed Alfredo Sadfilo about Brazilian politics several months ago, he said that one of the things that drove the resentment of Lula was that uh, the upper classes found their servants were being rude. Oh, they felt empowered yeah. because Lula is president. When it comes home, it acquires additional emotional power. Absolutely. And this is something that I think the right today, the left, I think, used to understand this. I don't think we understand it as much anymore. But the right has always understood this. Again, going straight back to Burke, one of his very earliest speeches on the French Revolution in Parliament, he says, mark my words, you know, this is not something that's just happening in Paris. And it's not just something that's about kings and palaces. This will be, and he starts, I can't remember the litany, but he starts citing every relationship of, of, of subordination that exists in, you know, what we might call the, the private sphere, or at least the non-state sector. And he includes in there something about hairdressers as well. There's this kind of obsession with, with the person who does your hair. But, you know, he says soldiers against, against generals, and then, uh, you know, um, and there's a kind of a nod to Haiti, which is very uh, prescient, because this is before the Haitian Revolution is going to be, begin. But he says it's going to extend to the slave, to the, to the slave master. John Adams in the United States, there's this famous exchange with his wife, Abigail Adams, during, you know, in the wake of the, the American Revolution. And she says, remember the ladies. Everybody always focuses on what Abigail says, and for understandable reasons. But he is rattled by this, and he starts firing off letters to various people saying, you know, basically, holy shit, what have we awakened here? And he kind of jokes and banters with her, but it's a classic kind of Freudian. The, the joke is managing a tremendous amount of anxiety. And you just see this all the way up through the 20th century. Um, the civil rights movement, people forget it wasn't just black people massing in Washington. Uh, it's the black maid who suddenly in Montgomery uh, is not going to be there for work that day because, you know, she's participating in the Montgomery bus boycott. There's all kinds of reverberations at home, broadly defined, whether the home is literally the family and the household or can be the factory. It really depends on, you know, on that sort of however you define that domestic space. Now, we've seen uh, an amazing, what seems to me an amazing devolution in the intellectual quality of the right. 
you may not like its politics, but there's been some very, very serious writers in the right-wing tradition. Today, it's hard to think of a single one. Yeah. I mean, is there anyone who's writing on the right today that you respect as an adversary? No, I don't think so. And and I don't think it's because they're not intelligent people. I think this is really important because I think leftists oftentimes, you know, and liberals too, you think that conservatives don't have much intelligence. Or if they did, they were they used to be smart and they're not anymore. And I think that's really the wrong thing. Uh, I don't think what we're seeing is a decline in intellect. I think it's the political situation. If you take this, this thesis of reaction seriously, it means reactionary thought. I mean, think of every great reactionary intellectual. It is born in the crucible of a revolutionary challenge. You know, wh why do we read Burke? It's not because he said reflections of things that are important to me. It's reflections on the revolution in France. It's a very specific political event. The most recent heyday of intellectual fertility on the right was Hayek, Friedman, Gary Becker, all the kind of great thinkers of the free market reaction culminating, you know, you might say in the 1980s. And, you know, since then, it's it really has been a decline, you know, and, and I think you see this, particularly in, in thinkers who I think, thinkers is too generous, kind of journalists who aspire to that tradition. So people like Ryan Salam, Ross Douthat, David Brooks, to some degree. But what's interesting, particularly about Salam and Douthat is, again, it's not for lack of intelligence. But what, what, what are they after there? If you read them very carefully, what drives them is a fear that of the Republic, the Republican Party is losing at the polls. It's demographically losing. That is not what inspired Edmund Burke. It's not what inspired, you know, Hayek did not sit down and read the Constitutional Liberty thinking, holy shit, we have to find a way to win the next election in 1964. That's not the way these texts are born. I was struck by the uh, the cover of National Review a week or two was uh, about the uh, a week or two ago was about the uh, Russian Revolution, hundredth anniversary of the Russian Revolution, and you know they're concerned about something that happened a hundred years ago. That's what's driving them. Burke was you know saw the French Revolution as the embodiment of all evil in the world, but that was happening. That was real. Now they have to go back into time or imagine you know Joy Reid like uh, um, Putin as a Soviet. It's a very strange uh, effort to find revolution where there is none. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I, this is the thing that's always interested me about conservatives is that, you know, for all the reputation of being traditionalists and whatever, they've always had an antenna for the moment. Uh, I think oftentimes a better antenna for the moment than the left has. Uh, but I, it's not just this right now with the hundred with the Bolshevik Revolution. Just think about Obama calling him a socialist, and this was before before excuse me the the Sanders phenomenon when socialism kind of came back a little bit as a language. They that's how far they had to reach back for their language of denunciation. They were so rhetorically removed from the moment, uh, and you could see it in, in the way they opposed him. Well, of course, there's also a black guy with a funny name had become president, which uh, really freaked a lot of them out. There's no doubt that they were freaked out by part of it. But the fact that the, the, that the language they had to use to describe it was so far removed. Um, I mean, some of them would say he was a Muslim from Kenya as well. Right. Um, yes. yeah. And uh, an anti-imperialist, just like his father. Yeah, right. <laughs> the chapter on Burke is, is interesting in many ways. But uh, one of the things you do in it is... Um, look at him as, as an economic thinker, which he's not typically thought of as. And you oppose him to Adam Smith. Smith had become such a pet of the Chicago School kind of economist that I think most people uh, rather unthinkingly classify him as on the right, mm -hmm. but he's not. Uh, yeah, so 
contrast him and, and his economic thinking with that of Burke, which is, a, I think, a very interesting contrast. Yeah, this is a really interesting terrain. And um, if, whenever you bring this up, somebody on Twitter, it always happens, will point out, well, Smith said... In a le- Smith wrote to Burke that you're my greatest interpreter. Well, Smith actually never did write that to Burke. We have one report of Smith once saying that maybe about Burke, but it's it's not really true. But that's just a, a prelude to the fact that if you read Smith's um, Wealth of Nations, and, and there's uh, lots of different, uh, you know, it's, it's a very long book, first of all. But particularly what's interesting is how he deals with questions of labor and wages, and um, it's really not at all the laissez-faire free, free market Smith that we have been led to believe. You know, Smith is extraordinary. I mean, first of all, Smith believes that labor is the kind of atlas that holds up the world. Uh, he uses almost that language in his lectures on jurisprudence. He believes that labor never gets the wage it should get at market because capital has all kinds of both legal privileges and state privileges, which some libertarians are willing to acknowledge that because that fits into their worldview. But he says more than that. He says they also have capital. Uh, It's just not a fair fight. They have a kind of power on their hand by virtue of their accumulations in the market uh, that mean that they will always be in a position to deny uh, labor, the wage that labor is owed and, and, and should be gotten. He even says, you know, it would be okay to actually have regulations regulating labor. The real problem with that is, is that it would be determined by capital. But if it were labor that actually determined those the content of those regulations, it actually might be quite just. So there's quite a level of sympathy, I think, to labor there. I mean, and, and there's a whole bunch of stuff. What happens is in the 1790s, Burke writes a series of pamphlets. So the, the thing that Burke has over Smith is that Burke survives the French Revolution and lives. I think Smith dies right on the the, the, um, the evening, uh, you know, 1790, right about right when it's about to begin. And in Britain, this provokes, uh, you know, a huge re- reactionary backlash. But also there's a huge fight over the wages of agricultural laborers. And there's a whole uh, argument in Parliament that begins whether or not Essentially, I mean, I'm being somewhat anachronistic, but whether or not uh, we should establish a living wage for farm laborers. And Burke is livid and writes uh, this famous sort of set of memos that get published eventually, where he basically argues what we now think of as the pretty much the hardcore free market, absolute do not touch wages. It all has to be determined uh, at market. And... um, that was not Smith's position. And it really is the mark, I think, where, of, of how Burke is looking forward to the future. I mean, Smith is still very much an 18th century thinker in many, many ways. But Burke sees that with the French Revolution, um, the claims of labor are going to take on not just, you know, the claims of the impoverished and, and whatever, but will become take on claims of right. And in fact, that language starts getting mobilized in, in Britain. And so he, I treat him as much more of a kind of an avant-garde thinker when it comes to economics, really pointing toward the future. And, and that's important, not only because of what it says about Smith, but there's also a kind of an apologia. It drives me bananas, to be honest with you. People say, oh, you know, the Burkean traditionalist was very suspicious of the free market. And they base that on a couple of stray comments you see in the Reflections on the Revolution in France, where he denounces economists and, and, and stock market jobbers. And I mean, it's, it's also caught up with a fair amount of anti-Semitic language as well. It's just BS, because in fact, when it came to writing about the questions of labor and the market, uh, he, he, like I said, he's really much more of a proto laissez-faire thinker. 
That was part one of my interview with Corey Robin, professor of political science at Brooklyn College and author of The Reactionary Mind, just out in an updated edition from Oxford University Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. I was born in a welfare state, ruled by bureaucracy, controlled by civil servants and people dressed in grey. Got no privacy, got no liberty, cause the 20th century people took it all away from me. That was Some of 20th Century Man by the Kinks from 1971. Song is number 10 in the National Review list of the 50 greatest conservative rock songs of all time. We'll hear number one at the end of the show. And now part two of my interview with Corey Robin, whose book The Reactionary Mind is just out in an updated edition from Oxford University Press. What? Yeah, there are two interesting things there. One is the reinvention or repositioning of the capitalist as a kind of new aristocrat. Yeah. So that was another thing. Burke did have a suspicion of the men of money, and I, I don't want to overstate this. And if you read, for instance, his speeches on India, you know, it's pretty scorching about these men, these adventurers, uh, these, you know, who go to India and, you know, essentially maraud and rape the country uh, and come back Aravists, you know, but lack the kind of, you know, the political je ne sais quoi uh, of a true ruling class. But that's in the 1770s, 1780s. By the time we get to the 1790s, um, he is beginning, he, he writes in, in the letters on a regicide piece and, and a couple of other things. He begins to imagine that the man of capital really could be a kind of new aristocrat. He never fully goes there. Um, he pulls back from it in the end because he's still too suspicious of just money. And there's a whole rhetoric against money that was in the 18th century that you know we don't have to get into. But he definitely, I argue, lays the groundwork for what you're going to start to see in the 19th and the 20th century, the, the you know. The capitalist is the aristocrat. And then uh, what we would later call subjective theories of value. Yeah. Smith, you know, and Marx took this from him and put his own spin on it. But uh, the the notion that labor is a source of value uh, versus uh, Burke and later his later successors who thought that uh, value is just what you pay for it. Yeah. But Burke assigned a special role to the capitalist in in this in this, uh, this this set of feelings. Exactly. So and this is where I think he starts pointing us towards Hayek, which is so there's two moves there. One is to say as you said that value does not reside in a, in 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 the commodity. It doesn't reside in the property. It's not determined by labor. Value resides in the estimation that the buyer puts upon the object. And what's always interesting, though, is, is that the buyer that matters to Burke is the, the man of money, you know, the capitalist. But the first move is really that it's, you know, it's entirely subjective. It's the kind of appraisal that one, you know, just think of, you know, kind of a museum, going through a museum kind of a thing and, and looking and appraising an object. So there's that element, and that's the value of it. And then secondly, as you, as you suggested, um, that the man of money, the capitalist, is himself a person of inherently greater worth and therefore is in a position to determine the value sub of the subjective value of the object and so there's a kind of power position it's not 
it's not an egalitarian um, kind of market. You know, you're you know both of us engage each other at the market. You're the seller, I'm the buyer. It's the man with of money essentially. And what's interesting there is that Burke, and you know that it's the man of money for Burke, if what's being sold is labor, it's the employer who gets to decide the value of the labor, right? So not the seller, but the buyer. But if what's being sold is money, so you're a financier to the government, it should be, you would think, following the logic of buyers and sellers, it should be the buyer that gets to determine. And no, it's not. It's again, the man of money. So whether he's the buyer or the seller, his tastes, his estimation, uh, his judgments always should prevail. Smith was very alive to this fact, but he thought it was a scandal. Uh, and he thought it was a sign of the sort of deremption and the distortion of markets. For Burke, it's a sign of the vitality of the market. And there's always been uh, a tension in conservative thought between uh, those who revere the market and the capitalist versus the warrior and the statesman. And you know, we saw this uh, brought forward during the George W. Bush years when uh, the neocons uh, rejected the, the economism of the Clinton years in favor of you know, heroic foreign, uh, foreign adventures and imperial uh, grand- grandiosity. How's that working out now? <laughs> so this is really interesting. I, mean, you know, I think that was our first radio show was, in fact, talking about precisely this phenomenon in the wake of the Cold War. And you did see a lot of these neocons who were, you know, really scanned. I mean, and this is what brought me to the conservative movement, um, not as a uh, not as a fan, but as a, a reader of it. Uh, and they were so they were scandalized by what you would have thought would have been the triumph of their vision, namely Bill Clinton's America, where you know markets were everything, foreign policy was going to be driven by markets, and they were sh- and they were horrified and they felt that it was you know decadent and. As you say, you know, the neocons really saw in the war on terror and the war on Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, this opportunity not to pursue oil or something so pedestrian as that, but for imperial greatness. How is it working out? I mean, I think by the end of the Bush years, we saw that it was pretty much a shambles. What was sort of surprising that McCain got the nomination was that McCain was so uh, identified with that. I think to some degree, people can overstate this, but I think it's pretty clear that Trump's nomination by the Republican Party signaled that that the Republican Party had really sidelined in certain ways that kind of neoconservative imperial grandiosity. I don't want to say he's an anti-interventionist or anything like that, because in many ways the policies have been fairly continuous. But at least rhetorically, there's no doubt that that wing of the party is looked upon with a tremendous degree of suspicion. And of course, they look upon him with a great deal of suspicion, many of them uh, endorsed Clinton, uh, or at least refused to endorse Trump. Um, so I don't think that kind of vision has been working out all that well. I don't know how much we want to get into Trump right now. Well, now this is a way to get into Trump. In his Asian trip, he's talking about how he doesn't want to pay for troops in Japan anymore. I mean, this really undermines 60-some, 70 years of American imperial strategy. Mm-hmm. So he wants to make it into a matter of money, when in fact... Our semi-occupation of Japan and many other countries in the world have been at the root of American power for all these decades. And he seems to be undermining it from within without much of a thought about it. Yeah. What's going on with it? I mean, it's super interesting to me. You know, the initial impression of Trump was, you know, the kind of America first year and that he'd be totally willing to exercise military power. There's a kind of thrumming militarism at the core of his conception of American state power. But as you say, there's an economism that lies at the heart of the whole thing. And everything is about economic transactions and all the rest of it. I think it tells you something not really about Trump, but about the state of the Republican Party and the conservative movement, 
that they allowed this to kind of come forward. Now, of course, the policies have not been all that different. I mean, he's, like I said, you know, ever since he's been fairly continuous. I mean, remember, he was threatening to pull out of NATO and everybody freaked out about that. Of course, nothing like that has happened. But the fact that they allowed uh, this guy to step forward, I think, really tells you something about either the weakness of the party or the weakness of the ideology, which was so seamless, you know, that anti-communist militarism, free market capitalism, and then the kind of social conservative, they, you know, the conservatism was the, the three-legged stool, they called it. And it all was supposed to fit together. And it doesn't really anymore. Okay, now let's get uh, get to the hardcore of Trump. Uh, you call the chapter, uh, what is it, a show about nothing. And, you know, there is this aspect of the psychology of narcissism about him, this mix of emptiness and grandiosity. You know, all politicians are narcissists to some degrees, but he really seems like he takes it to a new level. What do you mean by this show about nothing? What is it about this play of grandiosity and emptiness that seems to dominate Trump's mind and the way he behaves? Yeah. So, I, you know, the show about nothing is really more of a reference to how he thinks about capitalism. You know, I'm always embarrassed to say that I did a close read of The Art of the Deal. <laughs> which he didn't even write. <laughs> which he didn't write. But it turns out is a very revealing text about him. I mean, I, you know, people say he not only did he not write it, he didn't read it. I've begun to wonder if the ghostwriter, Tony Schwartz, actually has read the book because he said in that, this is Tony Schwartz in that famous interview with Jane Mayer. Former journalist Tony Schwartz's spy used to call him. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. oh, I didn't for know for writing that book. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, man, I, I missed that magazine. They were pretty good. You know, he said in this interview with Jane Mayer during the campaign, you know, I, I feel terrible about this book. It, it you know, it, put a you know lipstick on a pig it made him seem so wonderful and i read the book and i thought this makes this man seem like a complete cup of a mess i mean he seems like a an absolute disaster in, in ways that have proven to be correct so i actually thought it was a very revealing candid book about him and so well he did spend a lot of time watching him right he did that, that was his mode of research he, yeah no he did because trump didn't have the patience for an interview no and so he would just sit in on the meetings and no i mean and so forth and and you see that in the book i mean you know the kind of the the lack of an attention span uh it's all there and and the lack of follow-through i mean there's a, a long chapter a week in the life of trump which my daughter loves to periodically to re you know recite passages from because there's just such banalities and all over the place. So the premise of the book, though, is, you know, I'm this super exciting, interesting person. That's the narcissism, right? And you want to be, you know, you want to be with me uh, in order to find out all my secrets. And yet, so that's that's the pitch. And then you read it. And, and these stories are mind-numbingly boring and banal. I mean, there's the negotiations with Bonwit Teller over buying some building. There's the big decision when they're, you know, he makes a big deal about Woolman Rink in Central Park that he ended up um, providing the funding and, and doing all the construction on Woolman Rink. But that whole chapter, though, it's this endless disquisition on, you know, should we use Freon in the, in the, in the thing or should we use salt water? absolutely banal and absolutely boring and he reminds you of those those kinds of people who yeah, he's always talking about so and so as a character ha 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 you know he reminds you of that kind of that guy at the dinner party you know who just is so intoxicated with himself i mean he reminds you of a lot of men completely intoxicated with himself 
um, thinks he's so smart and so funny and thinks that everybody is interested in him. And then you listen to him and you wonder, how could anybody spend one minute with this guy? I mean, it's just it's like nails on a chalkboard. So for me, I think that's really the the show about nothing. And I, I compare it to these. I don't know if you're a Seinfeld fan, but there's this moment where Jay Peterman, who's a you know, total blowhard, wants to write his memoirs, but he has nothing to tell. So he hires Kramer, who's this complete loser. You know, it, it, he hires to, to get his stories and they're idiotic stories. You know, they're completely banal. And that's what it's like. It's just this utter banality of a man. I'm speaking with Corey Robin, author of The Reactionary Mind, just out in an updated edition from Oxford University Press. Trump is seen by some as being on the right, uh, then some people say he's not, uh, he's not a, has no ideology or he's a, betrays the, 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 the history of conservatism. How do you see his relation to the right? So again, take it sort of in pieces. I mean, one of the reasons why people say he's not on the right, the, the, the usual charge is because of the contempt for the rule of law, the contempt for established elites, the contempt for institutions and the constitution, the kind of ambient violence that is always trailing after him um, and the way he speaks, the sort of erraticness of, of his rule. But a lot of his liberal critics in particular point to that and they say he's not a conservative. And I just think that that, that just won't fly because, again, going back to Burke, all those features have been part of the conservative tradition from the very get-go, in part for strategic reasons, and in part because there has been an element of conservatism that has embraced transgressiveness as a value in and of itself. And, and, and this is just something that people don't want to come to terms with, and it, and it becomes comical at times. So, uh, I, you know, I, as I said, I became interested in the right under the neocons and people would say, well, they're not really conservative because they, they're Trotskyists, right? They're revolutionaries. They want to change the world. Well, go back and read Burke. Burke wanted to set the world on fire uh, and sometimes said as much. Burke was not the defender of the little platoons. He called for civilizational warfare. He wanted Europe to think like a continent, not to think narrowly as England or as France uh, or something like that. Um, so he was an internationalist, Burke was. I started noticing this, uh, uh, that, you know, Bush and the neocons aren't real conservatives. There was a break. They're not like Reagan. They're not like Goldwater, you know. And now Trump is the break. He's not like George W. Bush, who has now been rehabilitated as respectful, moderate, traditional. I often wonder who these liberals have in mind as their ideal conservative. You know, had Hillary Clinton when she was... Sometime in the 90s, when she was a full-fledged grown-up, was uh, expressing gratitude for her history as a Goldwater girl. Uh, but she said, today's conservatives are not like Goldwater. Yeah. I, I don't know what she was talking about. I mean, read Goldwater himself. You know, Goldwater. Who wanted to lob one into the men's room at the Kremlin. <laughs> and, I mean, I remember this when people were going on about the nukes. Trump talking about nuclear warfare. And I think it was Seth Ackerman who reminded me that, you know, Goldwater wanted to give generals in Vietnam control over tactical nukes you know, to deploy at will. So, I mean, but also the anti-establishmentarianism, to use a word, of Goldwater. I mean, he loathed the Republican establishment. He hated Eisenhower. Uh, he hated the Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party. Oh, yeah, that's what drove the right of the 50s and 60s with a hatred of that. That's the birth of the modern right, you know, William F. Buckley, Mr. Gentile, Mr. Whatever, go back and read on God and Man at Yale. Um, it wasn't just about liberals. It was, you know... Uh, also a brutal racist. 
very much so. Uh, and that's the other thing about the racism of Trump. So I see all of those things as fairly continuous, if sometimes more intense. Ver- I mean, it's just on a continuum with the past. But there are elements of Trump that I think are, in fact, new. One of them, which we can talk about more, is the critique of the market and of capitalism, which played a huge role in his campaign. It obviously played zero role in his Uh, governance since then. He's been a completely conventional Republican in almost every respect. There's no doubt that it played a big role in the rhetoric. It was rhetoric that we have not seen from a Republican candidate who had won the nomination pretty much since Teddy Roosevelt. Well, he is a masterful huckster. This this idea that somehow the the Russians are to blame for him. I mean, he's such an American character. Totally. The hucksterism, the bombast, you know, the ideological flexibility, should we call it? (laughs) Well, which is the other thing. Um, You know, conservatism has also always been, uh, I mean, on the one hand, it's been very doctrinaire, but has also always been kind of ideologically ambidextrous, borrowing all kinds of tropes and memes from the left. People forget this. George W. Bush, Fred Barnes wrote this gushing book about, it was embarrassing. What was the title? Rebel in Chief. That's the way Bush was sold, and people forget this, to the right, was he's not your prissy, play-by-the-rule, Northeasterner. You know, that was George H.W. Bush. George W. Bush is a cowboy, you know. Well, he's in rebellion against Andover, Harvard, and Yale, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this, of course, this has been always the, you know, the con at the heart of all of this, as many of these guys have, in fact, been fairly establishment types themselves. But it tells you something that they've had to play that role. And again, I just so I just see Trump as a kind of grotesque version of all of that kind of stuff. And, and there's many ways in which I feel alienated from the contemporary discussion around Trump and, and, and baffled by it. But there's nothing more alienating to me than when I see sort of liberal journalists like Ezra Klein and people like this. They feel so wounded and pained by Trump and see him as such a break. And these were people who came of age. I mean, during the Iraq War, in fact, many of them supported it. And it's as if all of that is just completely and utterly gone. Well, there was that poll recently that showed Democrats now a positive approval rating of George W. George W. Which is stunning. You and I first... Satan. (laughs) You and I became, you know, friends during that moment. So this is not ancient history you know this is not long time ago you know this is within my time of moving to new york city george w bush i know what about trump as hitler Uh, you know some of our more fevered liberal friends uh think that this is you know this is the it's like 1933 here um what do you say to that you know i was skeptical of that from the get-go it's interesting the genesis of this book uh, came about i think two or three days after the election and i had a meeting with my editor at oxford and the president of oxford USA, right here in Brooklyn at a bar. And I remember we were talking about doing this. And my editor said, you know, you have to read Richard Evans's History of the Third Reich, because um, rather than just retreading what Trump said, let's look at his, we're going to look at his first hundred days, uh, because that's where the fascists really reveal, you know, reveal their true cards. Uh, And so let's look. Yeah, they didn't waste any time, did they? No. Not, not, not at all. I mean, this is where I'm going. So I read the first uh, book in that trilogy, which is a fantastic book, by the way, just really good narrative. And I thought to myself, there's no parallel here at all. Forget, you know, once they get into power. I mean, look at what they had done before they got into power. I mean, first of all, Hitler built the Nazi party. Uh, he had no 
administrative government experience, but that guy was an extraordinarily experienced political operative. I mean, he built a party out of nothing and brought it out of the wilderness to, you know, become a major contestant for national state power and had a kind of very coherent ideology about it. Uh, And then, of course, people used to say, you know, start saying, we're going to have the Reichstag fire incident. We're going to have the Enabling Act. And I would point out, well, you know, that happened pretty much within the first, uh, you know, two months of Hitler being in power. I mean, I think the the Enabling Act was something like the end of March. Trump comes into power. He issues a lot of, you know, executive orders, which, you know, to their credit, working journalists who would look at those executive orders would say, it doesn't actually do anything. It just says, like, we're going to study this to do that. I mean, all he wanted to do is be able to hold it up and show his giant signature. Exactly. And or people would focus on the, the tweets. And I thought, you know, against the judiciary, you know, when we had the whole the initial fight over the, uh, the, the, the travel ban. Yeah. Kristallnacht versus Twitter. Yeah. And, and, and I would just Hitler you know, wasn't doing any of these things. Um, you know, by this point in time, I mean, for a while there on Facebook, it became a kind of daily obsession with me. I would say, you know, by this point in time in Hitler's reign, he had completely um, either murdered tortured or imprisoned the entire communist party which was his you know a real force in, in you know in germany at that time he had done the same to the socialist party and he was en route to destroying you know the liberals and all the rest of them as well you know so this is what he's done by this point and you know this is march now let's say and what what's going on they're failing the republicans are failing to get their health care bill through congress judges striking down legislative, you know, uh, executive orders and doing it with absolute impunity. And people would say, oh, but look what he's going to do. They're intimidating the judges. And I'd say, well, how intimidated can they be? And and then, I mean, the, for me, the always the performative shock of it was here we are having this debate in a fairly public forum. And, you know, this would not, not that, that would have been over with under Nazi Germany. What do liberals get by this? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I, th- I think this actually goes way back, to be honest with you. My first book was on the politics of fear. And one of the arguments in that book was that liberalism periodically finds a source of justification and foundation for its arguments in the existence of a kind of a boogeyman. Since the end of the Cold War, this has really been ramped up. So you, let's go back to the 1990s. The big um, thing and, and when I say the boogeyman, I don't mean it has to be invented. Sometimes these are quite, quite real. These monsters that liberalism is talking about. So it was genocide and ethnic cleansing uh, in the '90s. That was the big obsession of a lot of liberals, creating a kind of humanitarian interventionist liberalism um, that would topple Milosevic, that should have gone into Rwanda and should be more interventionist. That migrated during the war on terror, and it became about overthrowing radical Islam, which. Let's not forget, a lot of our liberal friends were very gung-ho early on with the war on terror. Uh, and I don't mean just kind of like, you know, Paul Berman types. I mean, it, 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 was, it extended further, you know. A, fr- a famous liberal once told me, Doug, Islam is a terrible religion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then so it was radical Islam. And then it became Saddam Hussein, who wasn't really a radical Islamist. So it became Saddamism. And then I think it has now kind of migrated domestically, and now we have it in Donald Trump. Um, And I wrote a piece in Harper's immediately after the election um, saying, you know, this is going to become the new ground for liberal arguments. And, you know, it it didn't require any great prescience on my part to see that. Um, That's how Clinton, as you pointed out, 
consistently ran her campaign. And that seems to be where the Democrats sort of continuously uh, reside in, in their politics today. So it's it's both you see it in kind of fancier versions amongst intellectuals uh, and you see it uh, in the Democratic Party as well. It's it's all pervasive. Well, I guess to bring this to a conclusion, you know, we look at the right now, which seems exhausted and incoherent because of the absence of a challenge from the left. Liberals seem flailing and uh, um, incapable of evaluating reality in any, in any compelling way and having anything appealing to offer to the broad public. Where are we? It just seems, is, is, are all these received formations and patterns of ideology falling to pieces? Since the categories of the left and the right were created, which were during the French Revolution, it has been a dream of many an intellectual and political figure that those categories would go away, that we would exist in a world beyond left and right. And it's never happened. And I think there's a good reason for that. I don't think they're ever really going to go away because there's you know these fundamental questions. of Hierarchy versus exactly. anti-hierarchy. Exactly. Yeah. Norberto Bobbio, the Italian political theorist, wrote a great book about that left and right, of the significance of a permanent distinction. So I don't think they're going to go away. But I think you are right that we are living in a moment where neither of the parties and their attendant ideologies are really grappling in any way with reality. Now, many things can come of that. One is we could just say stay stuck like this for quite a while. I mean, that has happened in history before, um, that you're sort of in this kind of interregnum. Somebody's got to make a move, but nobody's willing to make a move. So we could be like that. Or it could be that they we uh, are beginning to see some kinds of signs of leftist resurgence. We saw glimmerings of it. With Occupy, we saw it with the, the Sanders campaign. There's some DSA stuff. I'm skeptical. I see it as potentially a beginning. I don't think the left yet has a really coherent ideology um, or framework for understanding this stuff, organizational capacity, all the things that we really think of as being, you know, the kind of a left. I guess that would be my best bet is, is that we're kind of in this uh, holding pattern while hopefully the left is beginning to get its act together. But the two-party system, I mean, it's, I mean, we were talking about this the other day, you and I, it's very clear that whether the issue is climate change or, you know, we can go on down the line, we're not grappling with something. And that's a pretty dangerous situation for uh, a global hegemon to be in uh, without any kind of domestic leadership or constituency to even deal with it. That was Corey Robin, author of The Reactionary Mind, just out in an updated edition from Oxford University Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, another 1971 product. This number one in National Review's list of the 50 greatest conservative rock songs of all time, Won't Get Fooled Again, by The Who. Till next week, bye. Yesterday